Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Kyra, and we are back for episode 13 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. We only have a few more episodes until we conclude the reading and the mini-series. In this episode, we see the beginning of part two of The Odyssey, which, although divided into multiple books, 24 to be exact, it's also divided up into two parts, at least in our version, Part 1, called The Wanderings of Odysseus, and Part 2, The Homecoming. We see multiple reunions in this episode and in this section, book 16 and 17, which we'll go over today. Odysseus is reunited finally with Ithaca, his homeland. Odysseus is reunited with his son, Telemachus. They meet each other as men and as father and son. And lastly, Odysseus is reunited with his loyal dog, Argos. Let's dive into this epic homecoming. In our version of the text, we jump from book 12, with the lady monsters, directly to book 16. At the beginning of book 16, we receive a brief summary of what transpires, what takes place in books 13 through 15. You're welcome to read that summary, but for a few more details, I'm going to dive into those summaries here. Before we get into the summary of book 13, though, this is the last book where we hear about the Phoenicians. And maybe I mentioned this before, but I realized in working on this episode that I'm probably saying this wrong. I have been saying Phoenicians, and I completely, in that word, added in another consonant. Clearly, I'm horrible because it's supposed to be Phaeacians. There is no second N. But when I researched this, I googled it so I could figure out what the heck am I supposed to be saying this whole time. I can't actually find a difference. I spell it one way, and something comes up from ancient Greece. I spell it the other way, the way that it's spelt in our text, with no extra N, and it still pulls up Phoenicians. So I'm not really sure if I'm just horrible or if I was calling on something that I learned a long time ago or what the heck is happening. Either way, if I've said it wrong and you've been cringing this whole time, I apologize. But we're too far into it now for me to start saying it the correct way. So with that clarification out of the way, let's get into the summary of book 13. In book 13, Odysseus finally stops telling his story after several books of recounting his adventures to the king of the Phoenicians, King Alcinous, and after being denied the option to take a break to sleep because he was exhausted from telling his story for hours on end. I mean, the man just washed ashore after 20 days at sea. Let the dude rest. But oh no, King Alcinous and his queen made him finish telling his story. He was convinced to finish the tale in one sitting, and the next day, Alcinous and others give him gifts. So maybe the marathon storytelling was worth it? Odysseus thanks Alcinous for his hospitality, and after some fanfare, some celebration, some gift-giving, Alcinous's men set sail with Odysseus to return him to Ithaca, while Odysseus sleeps peacefully on board. The Phoenicians, or Phaeacians, arrive at Ithaca the next day, 
they unload Odysseus and his gear and return home. Poseidon snitches, and he cries to Zeus. He's angry that Odysseus had such a lovely and peaceful, sleeping and slumbering return home. Clearly, eight-ish years of suffering at his hands were not enough for Poseidon. Poseidon receives permission from Zeus to turn the Phaeacian ship into stone near their harbor as punishment. Alcinous, the king, observes this, which fulfills a prophecy that he heard in Book 8, supposedly, and then he leads his men, the ones that didn't drown when this ship was turned to stone, to make a sacrifice to Poseidon, to appease his anger, and they resolve to never again give strangers a ride. Whoa. Sorry, people and strangers after Odysseus. No more help for you. Get an Uber. On Ithaca, hidden from the main roads, Odysseus awakens. So this whole time, they dropped him off and he was still asleep? He has no idea where he is. He didn't even know he landed. Athena comes to him in the form of a shepherd and informs him that he is on Ithaca. He has made it home. Yay! Odysseus makes up a story about how he came to Ithaca, tells it to the shepherd, who he doesn't know is Athena. She turns herself into a woman and good-naturedly tells him that she knows that he's lying and she reveals herself, I'm Athena. She warns him not to let anyone else know of his return, helps him plan the death for the suitors, and she tells him, go reunite with your loyal servant and old swineherd, Eumaeus. She will go off, find Telemachus on his travels, and make him return. She transforms Odysseus into a decrepit old man for safety, and they part ways. Now for book 14. At his forest hut, Odysseus, disguised as a beggar, meets with his old swineherd, Eumaeus. Eumaeus, ever loyal and ever kind, gives him a dinner and tells him about the suitors and his dead lord Odysseus. So Eumaeus thinks that Odysseus is dead. Beggar, aka Odysseus, promises Eumaeus, your lord Odysseus is not dead and he will return and seek vengeance against the suitors. Eumaeus, who hates the suitors and misses Odysseus dearly, tells him that the suitors are going to ambush Telemachus on his return. No! What we feared and what Telemachus suggested could happen in book one, when talking to Mentes slash Athena, could happen. When asked for his own background, Odysseus, again disguised as a beggar, spins a tale about growing up on Crete, fighting in the Trojan War, gaining his fortune in Egypt, being enslaved and made a beggar that he is now. Whoa. During these adventures, this guy, this beggar, learned that Odysseus was still alive, but even with this, Eumaeus is still skeptical. Odysseus sleeps in the hunt while Eumaeus faithfully tends to his lord's Odysseus's herd. He is a swineherd after all. This idea of faithfulness is pretty key. Even thinking Odysseus is dead, he is still loyal to him, still looks out for the swine, for his herd, and he still hates the suitors with a passion. Now, for book 15. Athena finds Telemachus in Lake Daemon and urges him to return home. Otherwise, his mother may marry one of the suitors, Eurymachus. Athena also warns Telemachus of the planned ambush and tells him to find Eurymachus 
and have him deliver a message to Penelope that Telemachus is home. Telemachus receives permission from Menelaus, the red-haired king, husband to Helen, the whole reason the war started in the first place that took Odysseus away. He seeks permission to leave, and his cart laden with gifts from his hosts, he rides off to meet Nestor's son at Pylos. But not before. An eagle flies off with a goose in its clutches. Helen interprets this as a sign that Odysseus will soon return home to seek vengeance on the suitors. Isn't that nice? We don't even have to wonder about what this means. We get told Odysseus is coming home. Remember, the Greeks looked for signs and symbols of the future, and one way they often looked for those omens or those signs was through birds. So this eagle, this regal and kingly bird taking a goose, a herd bird, or more accurately, but less rhymy, a bird a flock, or a bird that flies with a huge flock of other birds, like the suitors, is a sign that Odysseus, the king, and thus the eagle, will kill the suitors, the lowly geese. Back at Pylos, Telemachus prepares to sell home with his crew. He meets this guy, a son of a prophet and a fugitive for a murder that he supposedly committed in his homeland, asks and receives for a place on Telemachus' ship. No idea why this is important, but I'm sure it is in some way. Maybe a thread for another story to get picked up in another myth? No idea. They sail through the night when aided by Athena. Back in Ithaca, Odysseus tries to get Eumaeus to invite him to stay longer by announcing that he'll leave in the morning and look for work with the suitors. Eumaeus shuts this idea down, insisting that Odysseus stay until Telemachus returns. Odysseus asks about Telemachus' parents, and Eumaeus tells him about the death of Odysseus' mother, the loneliness of Odysseus' father Laertes. Eumaeus then relates his own life story. He was abducted by pirates. Laertes purchased him, and Odysseus' mother raised him as if she were her own son. Well... This clearly parallels another picture that we received about Laertes. They owned slaves, but they treated them so well they were practically family. The men, Eumaeus and Odysseus in disguise, talk into the night. Meanwhile, Telemachus lands, safely avoids the suitor's ambush to try to kill him, and he goes to see Eumaeus. last, we head to book 16, which is in the homecoming part of the Odyssey. And this is the book in which Odysseus and Telemachus, father and son, reunite. Staying with Eumaeus the swineherd, Odysseus helps the man go about his daily business. At first light, blowing their fire up, they cooked their breakfast and sent their lads out, driving herds to root in the tall timber. So, they tended to their swine, or their lads as they called them here, and then Telemachus arrives, and the wolfish troop of watchdogs only fawned on him as he advanced. Odysseus heard them go and heard the light crunch of a man's footfall, but Odysseus doesn't know who this is, and he must stay hidden. He worries, and he calls out to Eumaeus that one of his crew members has maybe returned, that another friend has come to a visit, someone that the dogs know well enough that they don't give warning or guard this stranger. But before Eumaeus can reply or say who this is, 
Telemachus is at the door. The swineherd rose in surprise, letting a bowl and jug tumble from his fingers. Going forward, he kissed the young man's head, his shining eyes, and both hands, while his own tears brimmed and fell. Think of a man whose dear and only son, born to him in exile, reared with labor, has lived ten years abroad and now returns. How would that man embrace his son? Just so, the herdsman clapped his arms around Telemachus and covered him with kisses, for he knew the lad had got away from death. Clearly, Eumaeus was treated as part of the family, as the summary from earlier books indicate, because he knows Telemachus well enough to see him as a son returning safely at last, a son whose life was at risk, but who ultimately made it home safely. Eumaeus says, Light of my days, Telemachus, you made it back. When you took ship for Pylos, I never thought to see you here again. Come in, dear child, and let me feast my eyes. Here you are, home from distant places. How rarely anyways you visit us, your own men, and your own woods and pastures. Always in town, a man would think you loved the suitor's company, those dogs. Kind of guilt-tripping him here, making a statement. I'm so glad that you've returned from your journey to Pylos, but I didn't think that you would come all the way out here to see me. You so rarely visit me or anyone else in the countryside. It seems like you're friendly with those traitorous suitors. You never leave them. Then Telemachus, with clear candor, as the text says, which means with clear honesty, replies, I am with you, uncle. See now, I have come because I wanted to see you first, to hear from you if mother stayed at home, or she married off to somebody, and Odysseus's bed left empty for some gloomy spider's weaving. With these words, Telemachus appeases him, or tries to deal with the guilt trip by saying, I wanted to see you before anyone else to hear what you have to say. He doesn't make mention that Athena tells him to go see Eumaeus first, but who needs to tell their parent or parent figure everything? Then he asks about his mom. Is she still waiting for Odysseus, or is she married off? He learns his mother is still at home, the poor lady whose nights and days are wearied out with grieving. Odysseus, during this conversation, is in shock. This is his son. So he sits there, and as I like to envision him, his mouth hanging open. Finally, as Telemachus steps into the hut further, Odysseus stands up to move, to give him his seat. But Telemachus tells him there's enough room that Eumaeus will make another seat for him. Odysseus plops back down, and Eumaeus crafts another couch out of evergreen branches and fleeces for Telemachus to sit upon. They sit down to a meal of leftovers, bread, and wine. After eating, Telemachus sends Eumaeus, the swineherd, to tell Penelope, his mom, he has returned safely. Because remember, the suitors are ready to kill Telemachus and get the make Penelope marry one of us situation really started. Then, of course, Odysseus and Telemachus are there, alone, together. And Odysseus is uncharacteristically out of wits, out of words, out of cunning. He is faced with a child he has left fatherless for 20 years. 
So Athena appears to him and urges him to reveal himself to Telemachus. And with a tip of her golden wand, legit fairy godmother style, finally the imagery is complete. She makes his cloak pure white in the knit tunic fresh and ice this cake. She makes him lithe and young, Rudy was son, his jawline clean, the beard no longer grew upon his chin, and then, poof, she vanishes to undoubtedly watch from somewhere invisibly like a creep or like a true fairy godmother. Lord Odysseus steps back into the hut, and his son was thunderstruck. Cue ACDC. Thinking this is a god, Telemachus asks for this god to have mercy on them and promises oblation or sacrifices for the god. Odysseus, called a new epithet, the noble and enduring man, replies, No god, why take me for a god? No, no. I am that father whom your boyhood lacked and suffered pain for lack of. I am he. In other words, I mean, Telemachus. Odysseus, quite understandably, begins to cry and tries to embrace his son. But Telemachus, just like Luke, does not accept this revelation. Uncomprehending and wild with incredulity, or wild with disbelief, Telemachus cries out, You cannot be my father, Odysseus. Meddling spirits conceived this trick to twist the knife in me. No man or woman born could work these wonders by his own craft unless a god came into it with ease to turn him young or old at will. I, sw- I swear, you were in rags and old, and here you stand like one of the immortals. In other words... How can you be my dad? You were just sitting there, this old dude who looked like a beggar, and now you're this young, buff dude who's tan, claiming to be my long-lost father? No way, man. No way. You are clearly a god in disguise, an immortal, messing with me, hurting my feelings. Odysseus says, in sum, it is me. No other Odysseus will ever come, for he and I are one, the same, His bitter fortune and his wanderings are mine. Twenty years gone, and I am back again on my own island. Then, throwing his arms around the marvel of a father, Telemachus began to weep. Salt tears rose from the wells of longing in both men, and cries burst from both as keen and fluttering as those of a great taloned hawk. So helplessly they cried, pouring out tears, and might have gone on weeping until sundown. A few interesting things here to cover. First, why does Athena make him look like this? Young, strong, or life as they call it in the book, and immortal-like? There are a few possibilities. She wants Telemachus to see the legend of Odysseus and thus be more likely to accept him or to love him, to ease their reunion by showing Odysseus at his best, at his fullest, at better than his fullest glory. It may be to show the world, starting with Telemachus, how she, Athena, sees Odysseus as this immortal-like man. There have been multiple references, too, and moments that show how godlike Odysseus is. Or... 
It may be a way to inspire courage in Telemachus for what we know must come, a reckoning with the suitors. Or, or, because it makes a better story. Two young, strong, beautiful men hugging and crying it out. Second, we can see where George Lucas got his inspiration for Darth Vader's revelation of his true identity to Luke Skywalker from. The hero's journey is legit George Lucas's inspiration. Look it up. Three, or third, it shows Odysseus, and in a few lines later on, Telemachus weeping. They are beside themselves with feelings. And it is okay. It is good. It is emphasized. It is highlighted. Contrary to many other heroic stories, this is one rife with feelings of grief and love, of hope and loss. And the physical embodiment of those feelings are not left out. Odysseus weeps on Calypso's island in Book 5. Telemachus feels bitter and petulant about his dad being gone for his whole life in Book 1. And here, now, in Book 16, these two men, father and son, hugging each other and weeping, releasing their grief, reveling in finally meeting. They bond. And ultimately, they show us this very important Greek value of catharsis. It's one of the reasons that they had plays and annual festivals where there would be competitions between playwrights. And there was always the expectation that you could have a comedy, but you also needed to have a tragedy. And the tragedy, even though this isn't technically a tragedy, it's an epic, it's something different. That tragedy, that tragic element is there. 20 years gone. He didn't see his son. Telemachus didn't see his father. And they're releasing those negative emotions now so they can move forward better and stronger. That's the idea of catharsis that's here. Releasing and purging those negative emotions. At the end of book 16, we learn that Telemachus tells Odysseus they face over a hundred suitors. Odysseus sends Telemachus home to the manor and tells him that he, Odysseus, will follow, disguised as an old man again. Telemachus must pretend not to know him, and to set the scene, they must remove the weapons and armor from the main hall and lock them away. Dun dun dun! In book 17, the beggar at the manor, we see Telemachus follow Odysseus's orders to return home. Odysseus follows, disguised as an old beggar, with Eumaeus, the swineherd. As Eumaeus and Odysseus walk and talk on their way to the manor, an old hound lying near pricked up his ear and lifted up his muzzle. This was Argos, trained as a puppy by Odysseus. Argos was left behind when Odysseus sailed for Troy. He was a hunting dog, and although useful in his youth, he had grown old, like over 20 years old, in his master's absence. As the text says, torturing us with this description, treated as rubbish now, he lay at last upon a mass of dung before the gates, manure of mules and cows piled there until field hands could spread it on the king's estate, abandoned there and half destroyed with flies, 
old Argos lay. You know, you just know from this description that Argos has been holding on to life with the hair of his chinny-chin-chin until he could see Odysseus again. It's so sweet and so sad because you know that this dog, being this impossibly old, this old, craggy, flea-ridden, fly-eaten dog who hasn't had the best life or retirement at least, is going to die. And as much as we may want him to help Odysseus and Telemachus take down the suitors, this last chance, Athena does not do her job as fairy godmother and make Argos young and beautiful again. No. My hopes are crushed. Argos, hearing Odysseus talk, recognizes his voice. And Argos does his best to wag his tail, nose down, with flattened ears, having no strength to move nearer to his master. And the man, still disguised as a beggar, looks away, wiping a salt tear from his cheeks. He hid the truth from Eumaeus. Now, the question is, why would he hide this tear from Eumaeus? I don't know. I don't know yet. But I think, if we remember right, Eumaeus doesn't know that this is Odysseus. He doesn't know that Odysseus is in disguise. I don't think he was there when Odysseus revealed himself to Telemachus. Only Telemachus knows that Odysseus is this beggar. So it wouldn't make any sense for this random beggar to, like, cry over this dog. I mean, you and I might cry, because it's pretty sad. But, you know. Odysseus, disguised as a beggar, says, I marvel that they leave this hound to lie here on this dung pile. He would have been a fine dog from the look of him, though I can't say as to his power and speed when he was young. Ultimately, the beggar, a.k.a. Odysseus, says that they're treating the dog poorly, and clearly he was a fine dog. Eumaeus confirms our guess. He says the dog was owned by a hunter who had died. Remember, Eumaeus thinks that Odysseus is dead. And Eumaeus continues on to say that this was a noble, strong hound who was impressive and brave. He never turned away from anything. Now misery has him in leash. His owner died abroad. And here, the women slaves will take no care of him. You know how servants are. Without a master, they have no will to labor or excel. Well, that is some interesting commentary on social class and dynamics. Before diving into that, Eumaeus says, no one cares for this dog. And I ask you, why must a slave care for this dog? This dog was Odysseus's. Penelope, Telemachus, where are you at? I call baloney. This dog should be a king amongst dogs. And to that comment that without a master, slaves will not do any hard work. Well, yeah, they're slaves. I don't think their will matters at all. So saying that because they don't have a master, they don't have any will to work hard. What? That's not even logical. Them taking care of their owner's dog, a dog who may be freer than they are, is kind of stupid of an expectation. Eumaeus, okay? And you're a slave yourself. So why you go on to say, for Zeus who views the wide world takes away half the manhood of a man that day he goes into captivity and slavery. I don't know why you're saying these things, Eumaeus. I don't know exactly what this means, but it sounds like that Eumaeus is saying when a man is enslaved, he loses will and power for success. He seems to blame the slaves for this loss of will, for this loss of power rather than blaming the people enslaving them. I encourage you all to research this idea in this area of the text yourself, 
because this is definitely making commentary and gives insight onto Greek society and culture at this time period, of course. Eumaeus enters the manor and heads into the main hall where the suitors are. And Odysseus stops, disguised as a beggar, and visits his dog, who after 20 years sees his master, wags his little tail, and dies. This seems like an unnecessary and cruel antidote. Why punish us with our faithful reading of this epically long epic with the tale of a dog dying? But it does serve a purpose. It demonstrates the greatest loyalty. This dog, so loving and loyal, held off death for 20 years until his master returned. He refused to let go. He refused to go gently into that good night. And he waited until Odysseus returned. This ideal loyalty, it serves as a sharp contrast to the suitors, most of whom are citizens of Ithaca, who should be loyal to their king. But they aren't, and they're trying to take what is rightfully their king's, the ultimate form of treachery and treason. We end our book with the words, Odysseus enters his home as a beggar, and the suitors mock and abuse him. Penelope asks to speak with the beggar, but Odysseus puts her off until nightfall. We've come to the end of our episode. In this episode, we saw Odysseus return home with the help and consequential punishment of the Phaeacians, or Phoenicians. Odysseus is disguised by Athena as an old beggar who seeks refuge with Eumaeus, Odysseus's loyal swineherd. Then, Telemachus returns, shows up, and when alone with Odysseus, he finally sees his father, who is revealed by fairy godmother version of Athena as a younger way younger than his years, beardless, tan, beautiful strapping man. Telemachus alone knows that Odysseus has returned, and they form plans to deal with the suitors, setting the stage for the battle ahead. Finally, we saw the ultimate form of loyalty, Argos, holding off death until the return of his master, who he recognizes despite his disguise. From here, We have only a few episodes and a few books left. We will see Odysseus, still disguised as a beggar, meet with Penelope, best the suitors in a contest, and we will see the much foreshadowed reckoning with the suitors for breaking Xenia and their disloyalty to the king, Odysseus. Special thanks to these sources, Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey and Gradesaver.com for summaries on books 13 through 15.